Why, hello. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Battleground area in Washington, the state of Washington, just outside of Portland, Oregon. We're on the, we're on the normal side of the river, and uh, as opposed to the weird side of the river. And uh, we're happy about that. But anyway, I've written some books. One of those books is entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil, and that seems to be uh, uh, received well. And I've been talking to lots of people about it on all kinds of podcasts and in different places. And that's enough about me. How about you, Tom? Introduce yourself. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, uh, Christian ethics, and from time to time, philosophy and a few other things. One of the places is at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I am in Connecticut, uh, Hartford, Connecticut, West Hartford, Connecticut, filled with snow. We had another six to, well, it only ended up being about four inches of snow and then a good glaring of ice. Well, our hearts go out to you. Our hearts go out to you. So, Glenn, you're not in Connecticut, nor are you in uh, Washington. You are in Indiana. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and and then maybe just go ahead and bring us into the subject of the day. It's kind of a, a subject that everybody's talking about right now. Yeah, uh, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, and I relocated to South Bend, Indiana. Today, uh, I thought it would be a good idea in view of current events to talk a little bit about Ukraine, um, some of the history of Ukraine, its connection uh, with Russia, uh, how that relationship has worked or not worked over the, the centuries, and along with that, um, maybe get into a little bit of a discussion of uh, the idea of nationalism from a biblical perspective. So we'll see how far we actually get. Um, I think it's important, though, when we're looking at Ukraine and Russia, almost everybody seems to be focused on just the last century. You know, all of this, the discussions I've seen really focus on the period from the Russian Revolution to the present. Um, I think we got to start back a little bit further than that, like about a thousand years further. All right, um, give us give us the story, Glenn. So <laughs> let, 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 let's start off with uh, with uh, everybody's uh, favorite group of barbarians, the Vikings. All right, <laughs> and the the Vikings um, were sailing from Sweden primarily down the Russian river systems, doing what Vikings do, raiding and all of that kind of thing. Um, they went down the Russian river system, switched to others, ended up in the Black Sea from there, made it to Constantinople, and so on. And it's actually the Vikings, uh, specifically the Swedes, who start the first Russian kingdom, which they establish at Kiev in the ninth century. Um, they were known, uh, they were called the Rus at that point, and our word Russia comes from this group of Vikings that settled there. Um, there's some debate about what the word Rus means. The Finns use it uh, to refer to Swedish people. Uh, they, they call the Swedes the Rus. And it appears, according to at least some etymologies, that the word may be related to the word for red, as in the Swedes had red hair and red beards, and so they were known as the Rus. But in any event, Kievan Rus was the first of the Russian kingdoms. Okay, this is, let, let's stop here a second and just think. Now, I don't have any knowledge of this. This is the first I've heard of this, Glenn. Now, 
one of the things to also note is that the Vikings got around, <laughs> you know, they, uh, you know, uh, have, have, have a significant role in Irish history, the history of Scotland, the history of, you know, Britain. Uh, and I'm, I'm confident lots of other places too, but this is pretty far from home. I just didn't, didn't ever make a connection between Sweden and R Russia. Yeah, well, the, that's because we're Western European descent, and all of our history is focused on Western Europe. We never really paid much attention to the East, uh, but there was a lot of really interesting things going on there. Uh, as far as generally the Vikings go, when I was uh, taking my doctoral candidacy exams, one of the potential nightmare questions that came up was, did the Vikings have a net positive or negative effect in Europe? <laughs> because you, you can make a really kind of, the, the argument gets really complicated. I mean, there, there are stories of Icelandic merchants purchasing Irish princesses as slaves in a market in Sweden, I believe it was, using gold from Baghdad. <laughs> That's how extensive the trading network went. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so in any event, yeah, and a lot of that actually occurs through the Russian river systems. Well, in 988, uh, Prince Vladimir uh, of Kiev decided to convert to Eastern Orthodoxy in order to marry the daughter of the Byzantine emperor. This was a major, major uh uh, status thing for him, but the deal was he had to become a Christian. So he became a Christian, and so Kiev fell under the patriarchate of Constantinople, not Rome. Okay, so the Orthodox Church in Eastern Europe, among the Slavs, uh, has roots earlier, but the main beginning of at least uh, the the church among the Rus was through Constantinople at Kiev. Uh, by the way, the word Rus started off being referred to, you know, referring to the Vikings and then the people from this kingdom, and then it became generalized to cover a lot of the Eastern Slavic peoples. Okay. Uh, Kievan Rus is considered the cultural foundation of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. So before you go any further, Glenn, uh, I'd like to uh, hear some background, if you, if you have it, on the name Slav. Um, I've heard it associated with slavery, but I don't know if that's a correct association. It, it's actually the other way around. Our okay. word slavery comes from the Slavs, not Slavs from slavery. And that's because in the early Middle Ages, the overwhelming um, majority of slaves that you ran into in Europe were people who had been captured in Eastern Europe and then sold west, or for that matter, sold into uh, the Muslim world. And the net result is in every Western European language, the word for slave is etymologically related to the word for Slav. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so um, Kiev, uh, Kiev and Rus gets Christianized, Christianity spreads, but it's right on the frontier between the Orthodox and the Catholics. And during the Middle Ages, what we call today Ukraine was known as Ruthenia. And the Ruthenians, uh, their primary uh, interaction was really with uh, the people to the north, the Poles, and along with that, the Lithuanians. Now, Lithuania at this point also extended as far as Belarus, so it was a rather large territory. Um, 
And then the, the Ukrainians were really unhappy with this, this arrangement because, frankly, the Poles were uh, dominating the Ruthenians. And as a result, in 1490, uh, there would be a revolt by the Ruthenians to get themselves out from under Polish domination. Um, 1569, Poland and Lithuania joined together in what's known as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania at this point does include Belarus, and it's worth noting that both of them had a strong Protestant population in this period. As a matter of fact, this is the period known as the Golden Age of Belarus, and uh, it was heavily, heavily influenced by Calvinism, one of these things that we know nothing about over here. <laughs> um, in any event... Um, once the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth comes about, uh, Poland basically takes over Ukraine. And while they did a really a lot of good in some ways uh, for uh, Ukraine, um, there was also some damage that was done. Among other things, a lot of the nobility began uh, adopting Polish language and culture and abandoning uh, the native Ruthenian or Ukrainian culture, while the peasants uh, stayed with their old culture, the nobles tend to convert to Catholicism following Poland. The peasants tend to stay Orthodox. So there are a lot of, of um, there are a lot of tensions here. Um, the Poles uh, were not shy about turning a lot of the Ukrainian peasants into serfs. Um, a lot of them would end up resisting. And this group of, of peasants that resisted the Poles became known as Cossacks. Right. Okay. Um, in the middle of the 1600s, the Cossacks found themselves stuck between uh, three different powers, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Ottoman Turks to the south, and the uh, and Tsarist Russia. Um, ultimately, the Cossacks will ally themselves with Russia uh, in the middle of the 17th century, as a way to uh, basically fight off the other powers. And the territory became a uh, protectorate at that point. This is the first time uh, the area of Ukraine had any real connection with Russia. So the um, so let me, let me just stop here and just kind of mm -hmm. zero in on something. So the Cossacks have their origins in, in Ukraine, as I'm, I'm hearing mm -hmm. you say. But we associate the Cossacks with the Russian Revolution today you know, and what was going on at that time. So for, for most of us who have any awareness of what, you know, occurs in that part of the world, that might be the only kind of thing that we would have any sense of. Yeah, well, the Cossacks of. are actual Ukrainians. Right, yeah. So interestingly enough, Ukrainian peasants who didn't right. want to be turned into serfs. Right, right. Then in 1667, Russia ended up signing a treaty with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that divided Ukraine between the two of them. So Ukraine gets partitioned at this point. And from this point on, you really don't see an independent Ukraine. You've got um, Ukrainian uh, culture and language and things like that, which is related to Russian but isn't the same. Um, but they're always under the thumb of someone. The czars began to exercise more and more control. There were a series of Cossack revolts against czarist rule. Um, late 1700s, the Russians will destroy the Cossack forces. 
and then um, Ukraine will be partitioned once again. Uh, this time, Poland also gets partitioned. So the part of Ukraine that had been absorbed by Poland is gone. Uh, instead, that the western part of Ukraine gets put into uh, Austria, and the eastern part goes with Russia. Okay, so so we've got a, a history of things kind of occurring uh, in the Ukraine in which uh, different portions of, the, of that territory are parceled out to different great powers. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's intriguing to me is that, uh, as you described this uh, sort of story, uh, this history, Glenn, is the role of Poland in all of this. You know, what, one of the things I think that a lot of us today think of when we think of Poland is this particular place that gets beat up all the time by Russians and Germans. You know, it's right. just sort of like, you know, this, this great big... Uh, empty space that is being fought over by these great powers to the to the east and west. But at one time, Poland itself was a significant power in the region. Right. Yeah. I, I apologize for any background noise here. We're having people over for dinner and my wife is cooking. All right. Well, that's all right. <laughs> but if, if you're hearing background noise, I do apologize I think I hear the that. Instapot. <laughs> or yeah, well, it's actually, uh, we're doing Chinese, so it's not quite an Instapot. But, but in any event... Um, yeah, if you are familiar with uh, older movies, I think it was Yul Brenner and Tony Curtis. There was a movie called Taras Molda, hmm. which was uh, actually a movie based on a novel. And the novel was dealing with the Ukrainian War of Independence from Poland. Interesting. So there is, there is that. That's a, a sort of cultural thing that you may be aware of. Um, by the way, this period also sees um, changes in the church in Ukraine. So we've already gotten a Ukrainian Catholic church. Um, there are a number of Ukrainians that agree that the pope is the head of the church, but they're allowed to keep an Orthodox liturgy, an Eastern-style Eastern, liturgy. Right, yeah. So they're, they're Eastern Rite Catholics. Mm-hmm. However, under uh, Peter the Great, uh, who was the Tsar in Russia between 1682 and 1725, the relationship of uh, Kiev and Moscow changes significantly in terms of religion. Um, So up to this point, the bishop in Kiev was considered a metropolitan bishop. That's a step above an archbishop. Moscow, however, had got itself named as a patriarchate. And in 1686, the patriarch in Constantinople wrote a letter that basically shifted the um, authority over Kiev to Moscow. Hmm. Um, And then um, in 1722, also under Peter the Great, um, the status of the Metropolitan of Kiev was reduced to that of an archbishop. Interesting. So Moscow is now dominating religiously in Kiev. By the way, they also shut down the the Orthodox, the excuse me, the uh, uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church is also shut down during this period. Okay. So about how long does that go on? Do you have any sense of like the time frame that that occurred? Well, that's going to be in place for quite a while, centuries, in fact. Um, the letter that was um, given to Moscow, subjecting Kiev to Moscow rather than to Constantinople, wasn't rescinded until 2018. Wow. And in wow. 2018, the patriarch in Constantinople said 
That letter was illegitimate because it was the product of simony. Basically, he'd been bribed to do that. And therefore, it was invalid. And once that happened, Kiev... Now, this is after Ukraine has has gotten its independence. And at this point, Kiev... um, the, uh, the patriarch in Constantinople uh, makes Kiev, the next year in 2019, makes Kiev autocephalous, that is to say self-headed. Mm-hmm. It's not under any patriarchate. They've got their own Orthodox church there. Mm-hmm. The patriarch of Moscow rejected this. He said that's, that, that's illegitimate. They're still under us. Okay. That's going to come back to haunt us today, in fact. Yeah, and then to make the, this whole matter even more sort of uh, difficult to keep straight... We have the these Eastern Rite Catholics in this part of the world who are uh, who have reemerged as the second largest religious body in Ukraine. Yeah, and over you know many centuries of being un- unrecognized and probably persecuted, I'm assuming. And it tends to be um, closer, more predominant, closer to the Polish side. Right. They, yeah, near right. Poland. Yeah. So this gets us to the 1800s. Nationalism is sweeping across Europe, largely in the wake of Napoleon. Um, And as a result, you get a real push for Ukrainian language and culture within Ukraine. Uh, This is um, actively discouraged, to put it mildly, by the Russians. The net result is a lot of Ukrainian intellectuals ended up fleeing to surrounding countries. the native Ukrainians are largely kept down as peasants. They're dominated by Germans and Poles and, of course, Russians. Um, the peasants start looking to Russia for help. Um, but given the pressures by Russia on the Ukrainian leaders, uh, the peasants stopped looking to Russia and started really wanting their own country. And this is where you're beginning to see a real push away from empire and toward this idea of you know, really, I mean, even the peasants at this point want a Ukrainian nation. Uh, 1830s, by the way, I got it wrong. Peter the Great didn't suppress the Eastern Rite Catholic Church. That happened in the 1830s. Um, Okay, um, jump to the 20th century. Russian Revolution happens. Ukraine tried to get its independence during the Russian Revolution. However, they really couldn't get their act together. And, you know, there were multiple Ukrainian republics declared, but ultimately in 1921, uh, Ukraine became a Soviet socialist republic and was absorbed into the Soviet Union. Now, was there some payback for all of their resistance due to the policies of Stalin? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that, that's where things get really ugly. Um, Stalin seems to have really had it in for the Ukrainians who weren't entirely happy about it being integrated into Russia. And between 1932 and 33, uh, there was something that goes by a variety of names, the Great Soviet Famine, um, sometimes the Holodomor. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, This was a famine produced by Russian policies that killed up to 10 million people, um, in uh, most of them Ukrainians, uh, many of them in the eastern part of the country, um, which was then resettled by Russians. Yeah, well, that's that comes into play here. Now, uh, mm-hmm. am I correct in, in remembering that Stalin had a connection to Ukraine? 
Is he ethnically Ukrainian? Uh, no, he, Stalin was Georgian, if I remember right. That's right, that's right. The, by the way, one of the reasons for the famine was forced collectivization. It was the refusal to send tractors to the Ukraine. The distribution of tractors didn't put tractors in the Ukraine, even though it was the most fertile farmland, uh, arguably, in the world. I mean, it, it is easily the most fertile in Europe. Uh, and maybe the most fertile in the, in the world. Then they also set really high quotas for the peasants so that when they whatever food they grew that was confiscated by the government and so on. And that result, um, millions and millions of Ukrainians dead. Uh, yeah. 3.9 million by direct starvation. See, these are the, the kind of the, the data points that uh, I don't think most Americans ever hear you know, discussed or generally, maybe, maybe even more broadly, anyone talk about. Right. Yeah, and but, but believe me, the Ukrainians have not forgotten that. Oh, sure, sure. And as a result, during World War II, Ukrainian partisans fought against both the Germans and the Russians. Interesting, yeah. They were trying to get their independence once again. Right, right. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out so well for them. They continued to be part of the Soviet Union. Then the next step is 1986, where a combination of inadequate instructions in their manuals, operator negligence, poor design, all of this led the nuclear power plant at Chernobyl to melt down and explode. And this spewed radioact radioactive debris all over the place into some of the most fertile farmland in Europe. Hmm. And um, the, what is it called, the International Nuclear Event Scale um, this was one of only two that uh, two disasters that have occurred that ranked as maximum severity. The other being the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Right. So this was a really, really serious, serious problem. Uh, today, a thousand square miles in Ukraine is taken up by the exclusion zone around Chernobyl. A thousand square miles. Yeah. So then in 1991, the Soviet Union broke up. And once that happened, Ukraine was very pretty quick to declare its independence. If you actually look at the statements made by Russian leaders then and by Putin himself, they saw no problem with this. Um, the Ukrainians really wanted to get away from Russia. They blamed Russia for the, the famine. They blamed it for Chernobyl. Some even pointed to the dissolution of the Ukrainian Eastern Rite Catholic Church, all kinds of things. And frankly, they didn't want anything to do with Russia. Their centuries-long hope for independence was finally achieved. And not surprisingly, as happened with the other states on the edge of the western edge of the Soviet Union, like the Baltics, they ran west because they didn't really want anything to do with Russia because of the abuse they had suffered at the hands of the Russians. Right. Okay, so that's what's driving them toward NATO. Now, it needs to be said that the, the borders in Eastern and Central Europe are messy because although in principle we're talking about nation states, there are a lot of people from bordering countries that spill over into all of the countries of, of Central and Eastern Europe. My own family history, for example, my great-grandfather was a Slovak 
uh, in the Houston Bratislava in a period when that was under the control of Hungary as the that half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Hungarians tried to impose Hungarian language and culture on the Slovaks. My great-grandfather was a newspaper editor and novelist, and he, friend of Leo Tolstoy, in fact, and he was resisting this, and as a result, he was exiled to America. Um, that's that's why you got here. Ended. Yeah, and <laughs> there, there's a whole lot of other interesting history there, but I don't need to go into that. But Slovaks in Hungary, Hungarians in Slovakia, there are problems there. Ukrainians, uh, excuse me, Hungarians in Ukraine, there's tensions there. The Russians in Ukraine, there are problems there. And the fact of the matter is, uh, Ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Not quite as bad as Russia, but it's it's up there. And they really did mistreat the Russian population in the eastern provinces. We have to acknowledge this. Um, But when you take a look at the overall history of this, it's really complicated. Um, There's a lot going on here. But the whole point is, take a look at this from the Ukrainians' point of view. For several hundred years, they've been under the thumb of other powers. And frankly, they want their independence. And I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation from them. Yeah. You know, when we think about that part of the world, um, you know, there's, a, there's a kind of, uh, well, I mean, we, 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 we even create neologisms to describe ethnic conflict, like balkanization. You know, <laughs> you know there's this idea that this, this particular part of the world has been uh, messy for as long as anybody can remember. And uh, there's been longing uh, there for independence. Like one of my, one of my favorite uh, artists in the early 20th century is a fellow named Alphonse Murka, who is uh, Czechoslovakian. And he uh, is known for some of his murals celebrating the kind of the history of the Slovak peoples. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, uh, uh, you know, was doing a lot of that work in Paris, mainly because he, you know, didn't have the opportunities back where he had come from. Um, and there are lots of remarkable cultural achievements. You know, when we think about that part of the world, you know, mm-hmm. um, there are there are beautiful cities. There there are you know artistic uh, achievements. Great um, composers. Yep, great composers. But when it comes to the messiness of the region, is it is it in part? And I've never been there. And I've not looked at the maps very closely. Is it in part because there are, are few natural borders between areas? That's a lot of it. You have to realize the steppes, this uh, rolling hills and grassland, starts in Mongolia and ends in Hungary. Yeah. Interrupted by the Ural Mountains. But other than that, it's this, uh, yeah. It, and, and it is the fact that it is so easy to go, to go through that, led uh, several European states to attempt to conquer Russia. You get the Teutonic Knights coming in from Poland, you get Napoleon, uh, later you get Hitler, um, and so on. And uh, part of that is because the land, as long as you don't do it in spring, the land is really easy to traverse. In spring, it turns into the world's largest bog. Right, right. But I think this is one of the things, I think, again, that we kind of miss... Uh, and we, as we th- reflect upon kind of geopolitics is how geography comes into play, particularly as Americans. I mean, here we are uh, isolated, uh, two, two oceans on either side yeah. of us, two very uh, sort of uh, 
minor powers below and above us, we're pretty, pretty set. And I think that it leads to a kind of taken for grantedness on the part mm-hmm. of many Americans that um, everybody can just get along. <laughs> Why yeah. can't we just get along, as Rodney King said during the yeah. riots? <laughs> a couple of things I wanted to, to just mention before before we kind of move, move from the uh, the point we're on now is is the complicated history is, is very important, um, especially in relationship to the suspiciousness of a lot of Eastern Europe about the West that it considers to be very decadent and which is very decadent. Yes. And although the East has its own decadence and kind of uh, hierarchies of, of power and, you know, what we would consider almost like mafia type politics and and, you know, corruption um, in every kind of institutional level, they see the moral, uh, fabric of the West as something far worse and something they don't want anywhere near their culture and society. And I think that you see as, as especially the U S becomes more and more marked by the breakdown of the basic things for civilization and the power the West has to export this, especially into places close to that world. Um, you could see, you can see the the um, the kind of lining up of even China. I think is very troubled by that uh, that that especially in relationships to masculinity and things of those natures. Those aren't mm-hmm. small things here. It there is right. of course the old. Um, you know, tyrannical disposition, if you will, of of kind of dominance and this used to belong to us or does belong to us mentality. But there is also this um, meddling, especially with, I mean, we know there are, enough, uh, there are enough going on with those in political power in the U.S. who have had their hands in Ukraine um, and their influence mm-hmm. in, in Ukraine, which not to the common people, but to those in places like Russia and China, um, is seen as a problem and they want to deal with it. They want to deal with it. Now it is sad, like you said, Glenn, um, because you know, the, the average uh, Ukrainian that is not kind of loyal to the, you know, kind of the Russian side wants their independence and, and their, their freedoms and things that they didn't get to experience. And there is a painful long history of suffering and and the like um, going on there. And, you, you know, it, it is a, it's a hard, it's a hard situation. Um, and it is sad that we've had our, as a country, our own hands in that pot, which hasn't made it more stable, but I think destabilized it even more. Yeah. Well, the, the decadence thing is one of the major issues that uh, led to Osama bin Laden, you know, in the Muslim world. It's something that Putin very definitely plays up in in contrasting um, himself and and what Holy Mother Russia is compared yeah. to the West. Yeah, um, China is really right now in an active uh, uh, campaign against uh, what it sees as effeminacy in men. Yeah, um, you know, and all of these things are things that we are we are glorying in. Yeah. So there, there's a lot there. And the other part of it is that Russia uh, has uh, has been invaded by the West at least three times. And and so they they feel like they need a security uh, uh, borderland, except the problem is that their domination of these borderlands has led these borderlands to want nothing to do with them. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is the complexity of a, of the situation, but also the cultural amnesia uh, of much of the contemporary West. I mm. think it's probably less the case in places like Germany and France and even the United Kingdom. They they have a better sense of you know sure. this whole thing. Yeah. You know, here we are in the United States pontificating from this sort of like <laughs> island. Uh, you know, uh, we might as well own the entire continent. And the you know here here we are. Um, in, with our preachments, uh, kind of making our, you know, our statements that have no sort of, uh, so they've not been informed by the realities on the ground. Uh, right. And we have a tendency to not remember the past. Yeah, that doesn't do that so much. Most yeah. of the world doesn't do that so much. We tend, I mean, you know, we, we look back maybe to the 50s. That's right. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I uh, I think that this is kind of the, you know, when we, when we think about our strengths and our weaknesses as a people here in the United States, on the one hand, you could say that this is a weakness because we tend to uh, just sort of paper over really big matters. We just said we just are always surprised to learn that the, the situation is more complicated than we know. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, we're also able to because we we have such a short memory, kind of spend our time working on the, on the present moment a little bit and kind mm-hmm. of push ahead. And sometimes I wonder if maybe certain parts of the world are, just, are too steeped in the past. Now, I don't mean to be critical of historians. We need to know well, what I, happened in the past. But at the same time, we can't allow ourselves to be chained by it. That, now, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a hard thing to navigate because when are you – when are you disloyal uh, then, you know, um, yeah, that, all, all of this stuff, because uh, it's hard to work through. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, that is hard for us, especially as, as, you know, people from a, a, a light enlightenment country, if you will, is that it's easy for us to sever our identity from our, our history, but not for them. I remember when I was at a, uh, a conference, a uh, theology conference at the Monastery de Bose in Italy, and it was on, it was a bringing of the Orthodox, all, basically every strand of Christianity from e- all over the world. And I remember when um, a particular Western theologian would get up and comment on iconography, the Russians would get up right away. A lot of these old, you know, old old school Russian women, and they would tell their history off the top of the head to correct everyone who got it off. And for them, it was a, a matter of identity and pride and, and everything to make sure you get the reading of things the proper way. Um, and, and, there was, and it was noticeable um, how, how hard line that that thinking seemed to to westerners who were like okay well that's your take on it you know <laughs> yeah yeah and, and it's 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 remarkable how uh kind of insouciant and and dismissive we can be when we don't even know what's going on <laughs> i think uh we have a tendency particularly in the united states uh to kind of read the entire world through our very short uh history mm-hmm. so even when it comes to matters related to ethnicity uh, there's a tendency for us to read the entire world through the experience of, say, the United States in the last 150 years. Yeah. So if you're white, then you, you have everything in common uh, yeah. as, you know, over against everybody who is of color. 
right? So we don't have any sense of the nuances with regard to the tensions between, you know, longstanding uh, antagonisms in Europe. Man. Well, not even, it, not it, even it, Germany and France. Well, well, <laughs> well, again, just to, to take an example from my background, um, my grandfather was Czech, was from Moravia, born in Brno. My grandmother was a combination of Slovak and Hungarian, despite the fact that her father was a Slovak nationalist opposing the Hungarians. This gets really complicated here. <laughs> They were pan-Slavs. They were really trying to find a way of unifying all of the Slavic people. When they realized that this really wasn't going to work, they decided, well, at least we can bring the Czechs and Slovaks together. So <laughs> one, of, one of my relatives is one of the major signatories of the Czech declaration, the Czechoslovak Decla Declaration of Independence with Masaryk and the others. The Czechs and the Slovaks are, they're very close to each other, but they couldn't get along. Yeah. The Slovaks were tired of being dominated by the Czechs. Net result, you get the Velvet Divorce and Czechoslovakia breaks up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, our, 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 our kind of tin ear for these different notes is uh, something that even affects us in the United States. So, like, I was just the other night, I was with a bunch of friends, and I was talking about my experience in urban ministry in Boston. I was remembering a particular... Uh, conversation I had with a Bajan and he was, we were in a, so, no, this is a guy whose, whose uh, complexion is, is, uh, you know, darker than mine. He's, he's black in our parlance and we're in this, we're in this grocery store and uh, we're just kind of talking with each other. And there's a Haitian guy behind the counter who's take, you know, you know, ringing every, every customer up. And, you know, when you have a sense or, and you've been around the various sort of subcultures of the, of the, of the Caribbean or the Caribbean, uh, you, you can kind of see what, you know, you, you can, you can spot a, a Jamaican, you can spot someone from Trinidad, you know, you just have a sense, okay, this person's from, uh, Dominic, the Dominican Republic. Anyways, uh, it, it, Haitians are very easy for me to spot. I can spot them across the street. That's a, that guy's a Haitian. Anyway, so we're standing there and this guy turns to me, this Bajan guy, and he says to me, I hate those people. In other words, here I am, a white guy, you know, <laughs> Scots, Irish, and, Sw and Swiss. And he is identifying with me over against the Haitian guy. Yeah. Now, I've got lots of Haitian friends. I, I, I have a lot of respect for, for uh, Haitian people. And they, speaking of, of, a, of, a, of a country that's been under the thumb of another right. country, the United States has done a lot of damage in Haiti over the yep. years. And the vast majority of Americans have zero clue. Yeah. Zero clue what we've done to them. Yeah. Anyway, so here I am. And now if if if, if you your typical white American from Iowa or Indiana were to look at a Haitian and an American black and say, Oh, those are black people. They they have everything in common. They don't. Nope. There are huge cultural differences between Haitians yeah. and American blacks. But can anybody, you know, sort of identify those who haven't had some kind of long standing history with these different groups? No. Well, and that that's what yeah. I kind of meant by the, 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 the kind of enlightenment country that rips everything out of its roots and then makes the identity something that becomes constructed rather than, and this is why it, it, this, this can happen. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the same in every, you know, similar in, in you know, kind of my family as well. And, and those kind of things show up when you start to look. I mean, when people try to lump together, for example, European culture into one bag, 
Um, it, it's, I mean, look, fin- my, my families on my mom's side, they're all from Finland. Okay. They share, they don't share a language similarity to, with barely anyone else. And think of how different that makes everything else. But my, my wife is from Colombia, And she says, one of the things that she noticed when she came here is they automatically assume all Latin and Central American people are, are all the same culture because they, they do share the right. same language. And they don't. And so most think, well, for example, if certain portions of Mexico like spicy food, all Latin cultures love and have <laughs> spicy food, you know, or, or they all should be living in the same area or we should be culturally competent and relate to them all as if they're just one kind of group. And it, it, it is silly. Um, and I think, again, it, it's one of these things that hurts our ability to to properly, I think, receive the gift of others, but I think also to understand the history of of other nations before we jump into interpreting them yeah. from a very limited range of experience. Yeah, and that is uh, is exacerbated by the uh, uh, Latin American studies programs, <laughs> which which when they're done right, they don't homogenize things. But the very fact that you lump them all together in one thing tends to make it look like it's homogenized. That's right. I actually want to go off of this for a moment into the theological implications of this. Hmm. Okay. We've talked about all the different cultures. And uh, and what I want to do is look at the word nation. The Greek word is ethne, from which we get the word ethnic. Okay. The idea here... Now, when you look at Revelation, it says that people from every nation and tribe and kindred and language are all going to be meeting together to worship the Lamb. Now, think about what that means. The word ethne is a little bit complicated. It can mean what what, uh, missiologists call people groups, or it can refer to what we would think of as a nation. Basically, it's a relatively homogenous group that shares language and culture and typically religion and things like that. That's really what the word nation refers to, okay, in scripture. Now, what that says to me, the fact that every nation is going to be there, is that there is something about nationhood that survives into eternity. Just like individuals, people have sins that dominate their lives, frankly, and they need to be cleansed of those sins before they enter eternity. So nations have characteristic failings, but also characteristic strengths. They need to be cleansed of their failings and their strengths need to be put under the authority of Christ. And then the nation survives into the eternal state. So um, I forgot who it was. Um, I'm blanking out on his name. The guy who founded First Things with... Uh, oh, Richard John Newhouse. Richard John Newhouse. Newhouse said something to the effect that when he comes before Christ at the Last Judgment, he expects to come before him as an American. Interesting. And a lot of people thought that what he meant was that as an American, he's saved. That's not <laughs> what he meant. What he meant was that that there is nothing about him that isn't colored by the fact that he's an American. That is his ethnic, that is his nation. 
And as a result, when he enters eternity, he can't get rid of that. That's just going to be part of who he will be when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And what it suggests to me is that empire is not good. Nations are. Because empire doesn't survive. Jesus is the only one who yeah. rules over all the nations. Right. Empire doesn't survive. Nations do. Yeah. Now, now when we think about nations, um, if we remember Abraham, you know, the promise to Abraham is that he would become a great nation. And that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Exactly right. So, you know, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, uh, that if you know, I don't know how you can see or read that and not see an endorsement of this idea that nations are uh, kind of in the divine plan of things, you know, sort of in this divine scheme. But also, there's but there's a there's also a connection to family. So here we have a family that grows into a nation, and um, that necessarily also brings into uh, play. Uh, the biological sort of genetic uh, sort of lineage as well. Now that's a very touchy matter because we get into we get into all kinds of things mm -hmm. when when that idea enters the room, you know. And sometimes people will say, "Well, the United States, you, you know, the America is an idea. It's a, it's a nation founded in a, on an idea, not a, an ethnicity." So there, mm -hmm. there's an odd kind of thing that's happened here, but. Even in the United States, you know, we have uh, people who have observed that, you know, this is a place that could break up in the way that the Soviet Union broke up. We, yeah. You know, I don't know if you've seen, you know, the book, The Eleven Nations of North America uh, or Twelve Nations. I can't remember what it is, but it basically it's identifying sort of regions and sort of kind of their histories and even their ethnic compositions uh, yeah. to to identify the kind of the fracture lines. Uh, yeah, America our, is closer to the classic idea of an empire than a nation. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because sometimes people will say, well, we should learn, uh, you know, uh, from the Romans, because the Romans were able to uh, sort of incorporate people into the empire and citizenship. I mean, the Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. for goodness sake, here's a guy who's an ethnic Jew who is uh, a citizen of Rome. So they, they had kind of navigated this, this, these waters before we did. Uh, but still, I mean, when Rome kind of broke up, that it, was, it wasn't as though they were able to completely eliminate these boundaries between nations. Uh, they were just trying to figure out how do you make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And th this, by the way, also, I think, ties in with something that Lewis and Tolkien talked about, where they talked about this idea of northernness. Right. And they had real admiration for the positive elements of Germanic and Norse culture, uh -huh. but recognized that it needed to be cleansed of its pagan elements and Christianized. Right. Yeah. And when you do that, the virtues of the North come out and the vices are, are eliminated. That's yeah. the kind of thing that I'm envisioning when I, I see this reference to nations, every nation being before the throne. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that I think is happening, that the characteristic vices of the nations are purged and cleansed and the nation itself is then christianized the the virtues the good things about it are brought to fruition and the bad things are purged 
Yeah, what's that passage in Revelation where the, the, the kings of the earth bring their, tr- their, their treasures into, you know, as tribute to the king, you know, to Christ? Mm-hmm. Anyway, go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, and and a, I mean, I think I think there is a there's a true biblical thread there that I mean, I think is really worth worth pursuing more on. Um, but then there is also kind of the dangerous territory. I mean, this is something that happened with kind of the German Volk. Um, and as you said, it wasn't purging mm-hmm. off of the paganism. But what happened is a lot of times liberal Christianity um, started to see uh, to create something to where culture of a people and its experiences becomes sort of the the equivalent of of you know uh, basically the way in which we interpret and read even the Christian faith. So it almost becomes identical to it for each group and people. Uh, and so one of the things I remember Karl Barth's work was coming against the German Christians when they started to associate God's will with the German culture. So as Germany started to take up its war policies and all of his liberal theological professors from Germany signed on, he criticized them. And he said, this is very unchristian. And and their Mm -hmm. word to him was, that's your Swiss um, experience of God trying to challenge our German experience with God. Um, And so you, because you're not German, you can't understand that. So, I mean, this is, I think, as you say. Where where have I heard that before? Where have I heard that before? Yeah, that's right. And so, but as you say, when when we get the proper Christian theology filling that, the the proper, um, the way in which we don't turn culture into an idol, that it is not, it's not, um, it, it is, it is, it is a gift and it has its contribution and continuity and, and nation um, and, and everything about us without turning it into the kind of absolute that equates it almost with the creator, then we're on um, good ground. I think Bart went too far the other way and basically made the word word everything to the point it eliminated any gift that culture could have or would uh, you know, uh, produce, at least yeah. So yeah. leader work. Did you see this... this- did you see this article of David Goldman over in Law and Liberty about uh, Heidegger? It, it gets into this very, very thing. Yeah. Uh, the destructive impact of cultural Heidegarianism. Uh, Heidegarianism. Heidegger. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. But it's getting into this very thing, uh, yeah. Tom. Uh, if you look at look it up in Law and Liberty, you'll see what I'm, uh. what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I think that, that you know, just like anything else, you can turn nation into an idol. And that's really what we're talking about here, where you, you allow your national culture to determine what is true or false, good or evil or whatever, and replace the Bible, replace the gospel, replace God's truth with cultural truth. That's why cultures need to be purged and cleansed. But the, the reason why I brought this up in this context is that I am generally very, very supportive of the idea of, of um, the nation state. I think that that is, you know, I think empire, even though, the, even though Christianity was born in empire, I think the entire trend of the gospel is away from empire. It is toward the nation. It is toward the ethnic. It is toward the every nation, tribe, and kindred, and tongue. 
Right. And this this leads you to all kinds of discussions of things like subsidiarity and, and moral proximity and things like that. But that would take us way too far afield. Well, this is um, where this is where your your own Hazoni is, you know, working. Are you familiar with your Hazoni, the, the Jewish uh, scholar, conservative thinker? He's yeah. he's an interesting guy. He's a he's a. So the, the National Conservatism Conference, which is something that happens every year in the United States, is basically an attempt to sort of revive national sort of conservatism with the framework you know, of out, you know, or sort of outlook with the nation in mind, as opposed to sort of like, I don't know, uh, abstractions, the, the sort of abstractions we associate with, like, say, libertarianism or something like that. So when you, when you talk about a concrete thing like these people, not ideas like free market, the, the idea of the free market, as opposed to, well, these people in this particular place and their interests. So those are two things that can actually be at odds with each other. You know, in the United States, for example, the, you know, blue collar people, uh, people who have uh, for you know time out of mind made their livings making things, have uh, seen their interests undermined by a kind of ideological sort of commitment to the free market. So mm-hmm. that means that people in China who are willing to work for a lot less money are putting, uh, you know, these blue collar people in America out of work. Now you can pontificate about, you know, unions and, and laziness all you want. But the simple fact of the matter is that we can go to parts of the United States now that are ghost towns and we can see people who are, who are drugged out on opioids because uh, they've lost their reason for living. Um, and, uh, you know, is there anybody who kind of a, pays any attention to that? That's just one example. I mean, but, you know, mm-hmm. this, this, the, the reality is there are some people in West Virginia <laughs> and those people have been betrayed by our policies. And, and they've been sacrificed on the altar of ideals yeah. um, rather than their own interest. And, you know, somebody, you know, people will come along and say, well, we just need to reeducate them, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, what ends up happening is now they're working in, you know, I don't know, uh, Chick-fil-A. To give a good example, maybe they'd be working in, I don't know, uh, Burger King. <laughs> but they used, to be, they used to be involved in something significant at a pretty high level and they were making enough money to support a family uh, on one income once upon a time. I remember those days, the sixties and seventies. Anyway. So for me, all this discussion about um, nations and what that means um, points us once again, back to Ukraine. Yeah. Um, And the situation there, um, I have no idea by the time the show drops, I have no idea what the situation is going to be. Right. But the 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 you know the fact of the matter is, you know, this is an ethne. It's a it's a it's a related but different ethne, a nation from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, even to it's closer to Belarus than to Russia. But even then, then it's a it's a different thing. It's got a different history. It's got a different culture. Um, they're close to each other, but they're not the same. Right. And if in fact I understand the implications of the survival of the nations into the next world, the new heavens and new earth. If I understand that correctly, the Ukrainian desire for independence is something that we should, we should honor. Now with that, we have to acknowledge 
that it's a corrupt government. We have to acknowledge that the Russian minorities in the East that were imported in the 1930s haven't been treated well. You know, we need to recognize where there is fault because every nation needs to be cleansed by the gospel. We have to recognize our own faults as well, by the way, not just those of others. Right. Um, but at this point, I think we need to be really um, mindful of what is going on over there and what effectively is an attempt to reestablish empire, which properly only belongs to Jesus. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it all plays out. I've not looked into it very closely. Um, you know, there's a part of uh, the story that I'm told that, you know, s- sort of focuses on uh, the ethnic Russians who were in the East. But then there's this, this sense that maybe this is a more ambitious project to, to sort of bring the entire region back under Russian rule. So. Which is what I suspect Putin has in mind. He's already said that, for example, the Baltics, he's, he said that they really don't have any right to um, to do what they did, you know, join NATO and all of that. Right. Um, he's, he's really, I, I think Putin is really trying to reestablish empire. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. He's actually had some resistance from within the Russian uh, world. So it's not as right. though all Russians agree with him. Sure. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, to attack Russians per se. Um, I think Putin is a problem, though, personally. Yeah. 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 Um, another thing that's worth noting, just as, as an aside, I've been, um, I've been told, I, I, I teach evangelicals in Ukraine. I have been involved in a, uh, a, a, an organization called the Christian Open Academy. Uh, technically, I've, I've been an adjunct professor or lecturer at the Ostroch Academy um, in Ukraine, which is the oldest university in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, I, uh, there are there are all kinds of connections I've got over there. I have, I really doubt this is the case, but there are rumors floating around the evangelical community there that Putin's hit list includes all the Protestants in the country because they're traitors to the Orthodox Church. So. Uh, whether or not that's the case, the very fact that they're thinking this says something about the situation and how much trust there is of the Russians. Yeah, yeah, yeah the fact that the, their suspicions go in that direction. And uh, as we noted earlier in the show, there is a pretty tight relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian government. Yeah, right. and there's a lot yeah, of yeah. and there's a lot of influence of the West through the Protestants, <laughs> and and, yeah. and and you and so that's where a lot of the suspicions, uh, especially even the old guard in in Ukraine of of Orthodoxy. I mean, when you're losing, you know, when you're losing members of your your church um, to these new groups, which are increasing and growing. Some have called it sort of the Bible Belt of Eastern Europe. Um, that's, that's threatening to leadership and it, it sees a tightening, you know, easy way to do it sadly for them is, is kind of force it to happen. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like what we see, what happens with people, people don't like to lose control and have to actually contend out there with real challenges. And so, I mean, look at Trudeau in Canada, right? I mean, the minute he can't, he starts throwing the, the, the tyranny bit in which you, you try to 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 use all the avenues you can to crush, and so the hierarchy of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine could could definitely see it in that 
direction. I would like to pray and hope not. I hope they'll understand the significance of being Christian over this issue. But for them, they're much more blended. Well, in, yeah. the patriarch in Moscow has basically blessed this invasion and said it's, for all practical purposes, said it's a crusade. He did, wouldn't use those words, of course, but that's effectively what he said. And apparently the um, Putin thinks of uh, America as the enemy and, Protest- and America is a Protestant country. Therefore, the Protestants in Ukraine are the enemy. Right. That's how they perceive it, at the very least. Whether or not that's really the case is a different question. Yeah. But the fact that the perception is there, once again, points to this deep level of distrust. Well, this is a good point, to, I think, to close the conversation. We have a number of people who listen to us who are uh, have Russian and Ukrainian uh, backgrounds. And uh, so we just, you know, we just need to be in prayer for those folks uh, who uh, uh, love the Lord and are trying to do what's right. Uh, and they're in these different ethnic communities and they're trying to figure out how to how to deal with these uh, realities. And then, of course, there's just the realities, uh, you know, the situation there and and the fears that many people have that this could escalate into some kind of global yeah. conflict. Um, I know that uh, a lot of people in the conservative world are concerned that the Chinese are looking and sort of uh, saying, you know, sort of taking notes uh, and they've got their eye on Taiwan. And Yeah, you know, so- they've actually, there's actually been leaked documents that indicate that that is in fact the case. Yeah, yeah. If I were in their position, if I was if I was a, a communist leader and I was looking at this situation from that perspective, that's where I would, my mind would go. Definitely, uh, the Americans—they're not really willing to to to, to defend uh, the people that they've said that they would defend. Anyway, so uh, we should probably wrap it up. We we do appreciate your interest in the theology podcast. We have a lot of folks who support us every month. Uh, some folks. Uh, I think the majority of folks who support us do so through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, you know, if you become a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and, and uh, you know, pledge to give to that uh, organization, you can identify us at uh, the Theology Podcast as your podcast of choice, <laughs> and then uh, your giving will, will help us to offset the costs of our show. Uh, but then there are other ways that you can do that, too. So um, anyway, uh, that's probably all we should say for now. But uh, we'll be praying for, obviously, the state of the world, the situation over there in Ukraine, and many of the people who love and support the show who actually listen to us who have Russian and Ukrainian backgrounds. And I suspect there are people in Russia and Ukraine who actually listen to us every week. Yeah, I'm actually Um, in contact with a pastor from Ukraine who let me know. I wrote him when I heard this. He he found out about us from our show and he sends a newsletter every month and he let me know his sons were able to make it safely to where he is with his daughter. He lost his wife last year, so he's already been through enough. So this is is challenging. So our hearts go out and I have family there. obviously, um, on my son's uh, maternal side. (laughs) Plenty of relatives who are right in the crossfire. Wow, wow. Well, with those things in mind, uh, thanks again for listening to our show, The Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.